I'll start actually in, in 2 Timothy, but I'm going to read several different verses, one from 1 Timothy and then a few from 2 Timothy, and we'll get into it. And we've kind of been, uh, I've been preaching just some random sermons, but they all sort of tie in with just sort of uh, kicking off this, this new year. We've been discussing things like vision and, and what the Lord would have us to do and, and, and the Lord dealing with our hearts and, and making sure that we're focused on what He's calling us to do. And this, this message is going to be very similar to that, still in that same vein. I want to, I, I'm going to call this Good Stewards of the Good Deposit. Maybe you'll figure out why I got a, 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 a slide there that's got some money on it, but really it's not about money at all. We're going to, we're going to discover what the good deposit is, praise the Lord. And, uh, and we'll dive into this. So if you want to, let me read just s- several different verses. You can ha- hang out in 2 Timothy uh, chapter 1 just for a minute, though. I want to start, though, by reading one verse uh, from 1 Timothy 6.20. And, and Paul is writing these two letters to uh, this young man named Timothy. He's a little bit younger than Paul. He's considered one of Paul's spiritual sons. And he's now pastoring at a church in Ephesus. And one of the first things he says to him uh, at the end of the first letter that he sends, he says, So my son Timothy, don't forget all that has been deposited within you. And it's this word that he uses uh, a, a few different times and he talks about it. And the translation for it is the good deposit. The good deposit. He's saying, Timothy, don't forget all that has been deposited within you. And that's how he finishes that first letter. And then he writes him a second time. As if it's not enough, and in 2 Timothy chapter 1, uh, verses 6 and 7, he says, Therefore I remind you, Timothy, to stir up the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. And then if you skip over to verse 13 and 14, it says, What you've heard from me keep as the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Notice that. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. Let's, let's pray together right quick. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, uh, we believe that these words that were written 2,000 years ago under the inspiration of your Holy Spirit apply to us today. And so, God, we only ask that you would give us insight, you would give us wisdom, Lord, you'd give us ears to hear, and, and, and Lord, you would speak to all of us this morning through your word, and God, allow that word to transform us, allow that word to change us, and allow it to ignite the gift that you've deposited on the inside of each one of us. And we ask you for it in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So he's talking about a good deposit, and he tells him to, to guard the deposit or to steward the deposit. Now, obviously... A, 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 a deposit is something, y'all know what I'm talking about, you go, you go to the bank, you place a deposit in the bank because you intend on the bank uh, to take care of that. Now sometimes every now and then I've noticed, you know, if I deposit certain money in the bank, like every now and then they'll give me an extra penny or something, y'all know what I'm talking about. So they'll increase it a little bit, but it's not much. Uh, but, but a deposit is literally that which you give to someone and you entrust them with that thing. You entrust them to guard it, to take care of it, to make sure that nothing uh, bad happens to it. And, and what you're going to find out in Scripture is that when God gives us a deposit, He doesn't only want us to guard it and protect it, but He wants us to do something with it. It would be, it would be crazy if you went to your bank account and you went and you saw how much money was in there and it just, you just find out that somebody had deposited $50,000 or so that you didn't have before. The question would not, I wouldn't even at that point be like, well, who, who did this? But then you've got to find out what am I going to do with this $50,000, right? 
you got to decide, what am I going to do with what has been deposited into my account, what has been given to me? Now, what you, what you need to begin to understand as well is that when God created humans from the very beginning, when he placed Adam and Eve in the garden, what he made them were stewards of creation. He put them in the Garden of Eden, and essentially he says, look, you are made in my image, and I'm giving you the world. Yeah, the world is mine. I own everything. Everything is ultimately mine. It's my possession. I I control ultimately what happens. But at the end of the day, I want you to understand that I've made you in my image and in my likeness because you are to rule and have dominion over creation. In other words, what happens here is up to you. You have a say-so. You have, a, you have the ability to, to steward what's going on in the world around you. And he tells them specifically, he says, now in this garden and in this world, you're going to have to set things in order. You're going to have to take dominion where dominion needs to be taken. And he says, you are going to have to guard and cultivate this garden. You're going to have to keep things from getting into this garden that would harm the garden. And he says, you're going to have to cultivate it to make sure you grow things that are ultimately going to produce good in the world around you. So he sets us up as stewards, and then when Jesus comes, Jesus is raised from the dead in the garden. Of course, he gives us a commandment, and he gives us a certain deposit as well. He He gives us the Holy Spirit. He gives us the gospel, and he says, you are going to have to guard this gospel. And just like Adam and Eve were commanded to be fruitful and multiply, you're going to have to take this gospel and use it for the glory of God, and you're going to have to make this gospel be fruitful and multiply in your life and in the lives of people around you. So he sets us up in this, in this particular place as stewards. And here's what, here's what Paul is trying to get Timothy to understand. And that is that God has deposited something within you. There's something on the inside of every single one of, uh, one of you that is in here this morning. God has placed something, and he didn't put it outside of you. He didn't put it somewhere where you need to go after it. He placed it on the inside of you, and many people live their entire lives not realizing all that God has actually deposited within them, and it's on the inside of them. And that's why Paul says, he says in that first verse that we read, don't forget all that has been deposited within you. Because he understood that the, there was a potential that you and I would actually come to a place where we forget. And there's several times when Paul says to Timothy, I want to remind you or put you in remembrance of the things that God has deposited within you because he knows that what could happen, and it happens to me a lot of times, and I'm sure it happens to you, is I I actually have to revisit the scripture. I have to revisit God in prayer in certain areas of my life, and I have to be reminded of the things that God has given me and the things that God has called me to. I have to be reminded over and over again because sometimes I forget. Sometimes I, I forget what's going on in, 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 in my own life and, and, and with all the things that's going around me, I forget what God has called me to. So he's saying, listen, don't forget, Timothy, what God's deposited. But he says, not only that, he says, I want you to guard this deposit with the help of the Holy Spirit. I want you to guard this deposit. Now, here's what I want you to understand. We talked about this a lot last week with Samson, is that there is an enemy of our souls, and that enemy is after the deposit that is in your life. And that, in, that enemy is coming for that deposit. And he would love to distract you with anything he possibly can to get your focus off of what God has actually placed in you and on you and the calling that is upon your life so that ultimately he robs you of your vision for your future. 
He robs you of the supernatural strength that God has enabled you to do things that you could not do on your own. And all of a sudden, He moves you back into a place where you are powerless and you are not moving forward in the life that God has called you into. The enemy is after that, and He wants to stop you from progressing using the deposit that God has given to you. So the first question is, what has God actually placed into our account? What is a part of this good deposit? Now, if you notice in one of these verses, verse, um, verse 13, he says, you need to keep as, as the pattern of sound teaching. So he's talking about sound teaching. So in your notes there, the first thing that, that, that God has deposited into our accounts is the sound teaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The sound teaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, we do a lot of different things as Christians. You know, we go out, we try to, sometimes we try to feed people, we try to help people uh, any way that we can. Uh, we, we're, we're, we're trying to at least be kind to people around us. We want to love people the way that we know how the best. But probably one of the things that is actually lacking in the Christian church today, and people honestly lose a lot of times, that is the sound teaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and, and what God did is when He called people to become Christians, and it doesn't mean that everybody's going to be a biblical scholar or anything like that, but when God calls people to be disciples of Jesus Christ, He intends to place in them the ability to grow in the knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ so that they can share their faith with other people. Because here's what He knows. He knows that people cannot come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and be transformed from the inside out until they hear the gospel. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the good news of Jesus Christ. Hearing by the Word of God. That means that people cannot be saved unless they hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Satan is after that. That's what he's saying. He's saying, look, Timothy, you, you need to understand some things, Timothy. You need to understand that there is an attack against the gift and the calling that is upon your life. And Satan would love to get you to shut up. He doesn't want you, matter of fact, he doesn't even care sometimes maybe if you feed people a little bit and maybe a little good here and there. He doesn't like it, but at the end of the day, if he can keep your mouth closed from talking about Jesus Christ, the gospel, that Jesus Christ was God made flesh. That he came upon the earth, that he represented the Father's heart to all creation, that he, that he ate with sinners. That he loved those that were broken and were afflicted. That the religious people didn't want to spend time with. He went to them and he healed them and he ministered love and care to them. And he came to restore their lives to them. And, and, and in order to do so, he showed his passion and demonstrated that by going to the cross, dying for your sin, for my sin, taking our shame, our sin, our pain. And he was raised again from the dead on the third day. And the scripture says that if we believe in that and we confess Jesus as Lord and we repent of our sins... And we turn to him and say, Lord Jesus, I'm going to follow you. Not only I'm not going to just believe in you with my mind, but I'm going to lay down my life to follow you because you laid down your life for me. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he says, when you believe that, there's something that happens as soon as you believe that. There's something that is deposited on the inside of you. You're born again. You've got a new nature. A new spirit lives on the inside of you. Something transformative happens, but it does not happen without the gospel. It does not happen without the gospel. And, and Paul gave Timothy some warnings. He says, look, you're going to have to spread this gospel. You're going to have to live it. You're going to have to learn how to share it. He says, because otherwise the world's going to remain in darkness. The world is going to remain lost. The gospel is an important thing. And he said, you're going to have to guard it because, one, there's false teachers out. 
He says, and he, he says there's gonna, that's never a popular subject to get involved in, right? Is talk about false teachers on a Sunday morning. But you have to understand that if you are not grounded in Scripture, it's easy to be led astray by different beliefs and different ideas and different concepts of who Jesus is and what he's come to do. And he says, Timothy, you got to watch out because there's going to be people come in, especially at Ephesus. He said, I wept night and day telling you that there would be people that come in that try to turn you from the truth of the gospel. And he said, not only that, Timothy, he said, but there's going to be people that come in among your church. And he says, all they're going to want to do is argue about things that don't benefit anybody. It could be doctrine. It could be whether or not the gifts of the Spirit have ceased. It could be whether or not uh, God chooses those to be saved or whether he doesn't choose those to be saved. He said, but at the end of the day, all you're doing is arguing about this and you're not growing in godliness. He says, so that, that could hinder you. He said, but not only that, Timothy, he said, there's going to be a time, if you read in chapter 3, where perilous times are going to come. And this word perilous, obviously peril is a, is a negative word, but the, the Greek word, it actually means, it means to slacken or to let down. It means to reduce the strength. And he says perilous times are going to come. He says men are going to be lovers of money. They're going to be lovers of themselves. They're going to be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. He says they'll have a form of outward godliness, but inwardly they will deny the power of God. And he says, from such, turn away. And here's what he's saying. He's saying, even the conditions in the world and in the church, he says, it's going to get really challenging, Timothy. Like, it's going to be, it's going to be a bad time. And there are going to be people that rub you the wrong way. Anybody ever had that happen? Even, among, even in the church. He says, people are going to be unloving. They're going to be unforgiving. They're going to be unmerciful. And he says, what's going to happen is the character of people is going to begin to decline to such a great degree, Timothy, that it's actually going to reduce your strength. It's going to wear you out. You're going to be lowered down, and you're going to get to the place where you feel like giving up, and you feel like letting go of a lot of the things that God has called you to. And this is why I believe in, in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 6, he says specifically this. He says, Therefore I remind you to stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. He's saying, it's going to, be, it's going to be, get difficult. You're going to be tempted to lay down. You're going to say, it's just too difficult. It's too hard. People are hard. He even tells Timothy, he says, look, Timothy, you're going to be out there preaching the truth and there's going to come a time when men will no longer listen to your teaching and your preaching because they will actually go to someone who will tell them what they want to hear instead of what you're actually telling them is true, right? He says, they're going to turn away from actually listening to sound doctrine. And he says, but I need you to remember that you need to stir up the gift of God that is within you by the laying on of my hands. Now, that's the second thing you can put in your notes. And the second thing that God deposits in us is the gift. It's the gift of God. Now, this word for gift is, is the word we get charisma from. And it's, it's, it's anointing, right? Now, it, you guys know about, you know, people talk about the crazy charismatics and stuff. Like, there are churches that are charismatic. And what that really means is, uh, what, what that means is, is that, they label these churches because they say, well, these, these churches believe in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Because that word charisma, it means a grace gift. And it has to do with spiritual gifting. Now, we, we believe in the spiritual gifts, but we believe they're there for a purpose and they're not there to show off. They're not there to cause a scene. They're not there to do any of those things. Jesus was gifted with the Holy Spirit without measure and he operated in, in, in the, the spiritual gifts. We know that to be a fact. So Paul is telling Timothy that there is an anointing upon your life that enables you to do what Christ did while he was on the earth. Now Christ, Jesus, he, com he comes and he's anointed with the Holy Spirit. 
And Jesus even said, quoting the Old Testament, he said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the good news to the afflicted. Do you know that you need a supernatural empowerment to effectively preach the good news to the afflicted? Because it's, it's not just about memorizing Scripture or, or getting a sermon together. It's about being able to meet people where they are at and have the boldness and the empowerment to be convinced that the truth that you are speaking is transformative. If you're not convinced that the gospel is transformative, you won't, you won't tell anybody. You will keep it locked away. And he's saying, you've got to stir up that anointing. You have to stir up that gift. And stirring up, some translations say you've got to fan it into flames. In other words, he's saying, you had a fire on the inside of you, but it's beginning to dwindle. And now you just got some hot coals. And what you need to do is start to blow on that thing and fan that sucker back into flames. Because the same anointing that was on Christ Jesus to preach the good news to the afflicted, to heal the brokenhearted, to open the eyes of the blind, to set those who are captive to addiction and bondage and sin, and those who are locked down in the prisons of their own soul. He says there's an anointing upon your life to bring that to people. And that's what the anointing is about. I'm telling you, to be charismatic, if it's just about being weird in church, then we don't want it. Amen? If it's about being weird in church, then we're not interested. But if it is about being anointed with the power of God to bring deliverance to those who are bound by sin and by addiction and to bring freedom and truth into their life so that they can have a real relationship with Jesus Christ, then Lord, give us the gift of God. Pour this anointing out into my spirit. Help me to help others. Because God, I know there are people, there are people in situations that I cannot help them unless God does something with me and through me. Anybody amen me? And the Lord, I believe, says that, that when you get to that position where you realize that there are people in this world that you can't help, he said, man, that's a good place to be because then you can begin to rely on the gift of God, the anointing of God, the Spirit of God. Because what, what God is calling you to do, you cannot do in your own natural ability. So that's the gift. Because then he says, now notice the next verse, verse 7. He said, for God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. He's saying, look, Timothy, what God did not deposit into your heart, let me tell you something he didn't deposit. That's a spirit of fear. He's saying, if a spirit of fear is at work in your heart right now, he says, I know it's bad. You got false teachers. You got people coming in arguing and quarreling and all this stuff. You got perilous times. People are doing some crazy messed up stuff, and it just looks difficult. I know that, Timothy, but let me understand. Let me help you understand something. There's a deposit in you, and what it is not is a spirit of fear. It's not in there. He said, God did not place that within you. And see, what you need to understand is one of the primary tactics of Satan to keep you from stepping out into your calling and fulfilling what God has called you to do is a spirit of fear. That's one of his first tactics. And, and, and nine times out of ten, if he's going to move on someone to keep them from stepping forward into the ministry or into the calling that God has for them, what he'll use is fear every time first. I mean, I'll be honest with you. There are times even, even after I've been preaching for... for you know, 10 years or so now, that before I'll get behind this pulpit, there's fear in my life sometimes. And I said, Lord, I don't know if I can get up there. There are going to be people listening to me. I'm a doofus. You know what I'm saying? And you just, you think all these things in your mind, there's these things going on in your mind, but it is a spirit of fear that is called, trying to cripple you and keep you in this position where it's telling you, you can't do that, and, and, and it will not be accomplished. And even if you did step, just let somebody else do it, because you can't do it and you can't accomplish it. And not only that, you're not even really that worthy. Why would God use you? I'm telling you, you can tell you what makes us worthy is the blood of Jesus Christ. I don't stand up here because I earned it. I stand up here because the blood of Jesus washed me, and, he, and I said, Lord, I'm, I ain't worth much. He said, that's okay, Clay, I can use you if you'll let me. 
and it makes me, I'm not worthy because I'm perfect or because I do things right, but I stand here on the grace of God because I'm washed in the blood of Jesus. And when Satan comes against me to attack me and say, well, you can't get up there because of this, the Lord says, no, he's been washed and I've cleansed him and he stands in my grace. So we have that for us, but he says, you, we, we need to have that gift and we got to understand that that spirit of fear, fear is what turns a vision from God into a series of worst case scenarios. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Sometimes God will give you just, a, just an image, maybe even just a picture, a vision of what He's calling you to do, a vision of your future, and you're thinking, maybe I should step out in this. Maybe I should just try to allow the, God to develop something in me and use me in this place. But all of a sudden, fear comes in, and you just begin to see the worst possible outcome. I mean, I, I'm not kidding you. I'll be praying about a service, or I'll be pl- praying about going somewhere to minister to somebody. I, I get calls throughout the week, and people are saying, would you come counsel with this person and, 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 and talk with this person? They're dealing with this. And a lot of times, whenever I first get that message, you know what happens? I imagine it in my mind, and it's a worst-case scenario. I mean, like, I, I just imagine going and counseling somebody and getting beat up or something. You know what I'm saying? I mean, you get, I, so, y'all know what I'm talking about. This is a spirit of fear at work trying to back you up into a corner to say, don't step forward. Don't let God use you. Don't let God bring you into that place. Don't allow it to happen. See, but the the, the third thing here that God gives us, he says, God's not giving us the spirit of fear, but of power. Now, the third thing is power. And power, it's a courage and a resolution to fulfill our calling. And anything that God calls you to do, I'm telling you, it is going to take supernatural boldness and courage. You won't be able to do it on your own. What he asks you to do, you will feel like you are incapable. And if you feel like you're capable, I would suggest maybe not doing it. But he says, there's this power. Now this word power in the Greek language is a word dunamis, and it's, and it's repeated several times in Scripture. But in Acts 1.8, for example, we have the Scripture saying that, that, that Jesus says to his disciples, he says, he says that you shall receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me. And then you'll go throughout all the world witnessing to this truth of who I am. Now, I don't know about you, But when I first became a Christian and I started reading the Bible and I believed in Jesus, there was nothing on the inside of me that compelled me to talk to anybody about Jesus. Matter of fact, I pretty much hid it from it at the time. You know, I was was still still drinking a lot, doing some drugs every now and then, you know, just that kind of lifestyle. But I was seeking Jesus. I wanted to be free. But there was nothing on the inside of me that compelled me to talk to anybody about Jesus. But all of a sudden, I had an encounter where I was set free and there was a power that come on, came on, on the inside of me. And all of a sudden, I could not help but be a witness to Jesus. And what I mean by that is I would get around people, and all of a sudden, my heart would begin to beat. And I would know in that moment, man, I, I've got to speak to these people about the reality of who Jesus is, what he's done in my life, and what he can do in their life. And at that point, I didn't even have much Bible knowledge, but there was a power on the inside of me that was pushing me, that was compelling me. You say, well, I, I don't know about that, Clay. Is that real? It's absolutely real. And when we talk about, you know, some people will preach and they'll say, well, you know, the reason the men, you, the reason men like Peter and John were able to go throughout the whole world was because they saw the resurrected Christ. And after they saw the resurrected Christ, man, they could just go throughout the whole world and, and do all these wonderful things. Well, where does that leave you and I? We've not seen the resurrected Christ. But do you realize that after Jesus was resurrected and before he died, Peter denied Jesus three times. Why? Because of fear. It says that they hid in an upper room 
for fear of the Jews. They were afraid that the same men that killed Jesus were going to come and kill them as well. So they hid, and Jesus is resurrected. He's raised from the dead, and he spends about 40 days with them while he's raised from the dead. And he tells them specifically, hey guys, don't go out and preach yet. Don't go. He said, matter of fact, tarry in Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. Wait and pray and seek my face until you receive the anointing of the Holy Spirit and all of a sudden you are compelled to preach this gospel that I've given you. And Peter was in the upper room, the man that had denied Jesus three times and was hiding, and when they were filled with the Holy Spirit, Peter comes out and preaches to the gospel to the same men that he was afraid to preach it to before, and 3,000 men were saved. He says, I've deposited this power within you, and I want you to fan that power into flames. There's something that if you will come to God for the resources and allow Him to fill you with His Spirit, He's saying, I will, I will give you a strength and a power and anointing that will enable you to do things that you've not done before. And then He says, but not only power, the fourth thing is love. He gives us power, He gives us love, and see, love is really, the, it, it, that's the greatest motivator. As Christians, we can do a lot of things. You can even get caught up in that whole cycle of like being a Christian and you want to do the right thing because you're a Christian. You know what I'm saying? And maybe somebody will see you doing the right thing and they'll be like, wow, that's, that's a good Christian person. Yeah. And that's a bad motivation. You know, a lot of people will even teach that Jesus, um, that, 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 you know, he healed the sick and, and he did all of these things to prove that he was God. I disagree. Jesus' motivation was never to prove who he was because oftentimes he would even hide from people and, not, not, and tell people, don't tell people who I am. It's clearly not his motivator. His motivation was that he loved humanity so much. He didn't heal the sick because he wanted to say, look, a miracle, I'm God. He healed the sick because he loved the sick. And he couldn't stand to see them in torment. He couldn't stand to see them in bondage, and it was love that compelled him. Ultimately, it was love that compelled him to go to the cross. And love, God has shed abroad this love in our hearts, and I'm telling you, we often have to come and and, and revisit our hearts and say, man, what is my motivation for even following Jesus? What is my motivation for the things that I do? Because if it's not for the love of God and for the love of people, and if I'm not reaching out to people because I love them, but here's Paul even said, he said, the love of Christ compels me to preach this gospel. It motivates me because I love people and I think about their eternal situation and the condition of their soul and this love compels me. And the last thing, number five, that he says he gives him is he, he says he gives them a, a sound mind. See, fear robs us of rest and fear robs us of a sound mind. Fear brings confusion. Fear brings anxiety. Fear brings racing thoughts. But God says, I've not given you all that anxiety and all that confusion and all that fear, but I've given you power of love and I've given you a sound mind. I've given you the mind of Christ so that you can walk with wisdom toward those who don't know Christ so that you can understand what the will of the Lord is in stressful situations and you can be at peace and you can think clearly and not be worried. He said, that's the mind that I've given you. Now, it's really interesting that he says power, love, and a sound mind. If you read in, in the book of 1 Corinthians, and we go to it a lot, obviously we're a church that, uh, like I said, we believe in spiritual gifts. But in 1 Corinthians 12, you have the, 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 the nine spiritual gifts. That's power. In 1 Corinthians 13, you have the chapter of love, which is right in the center, right in the middle, because love should be the center of all things. And then you skip over to chapter 14, and ultimately what you have is, out of love and the power of the spiritual gifts, how should they operate under control and in order and operate properly. It's a sound mind. 
He said, all three of these things work together. You need power, you need love, you need a sound mind, and all of those things flow from the gift of God, the anointing of the Holy Spirit that is within you. And when you have that within you and you can stir that up, he says, all of a sudden you're going to be able to communicate the gospel, live the gospel, share the gospel, and you're going to see people come to faith in Christ and their lives be transformed. He said, so you've got to guard this, Timothy. Guard this. It's so important that you guard this and you take care of it. Now, Jesus... Jesus said it like this in Matthew 25. He said it a little bit differently, but it's really the same, the same concept. In, in Matthew 25, verse 1, Jesus says, Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to... Let me, let me, let me look here at a different verse. For the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. He says, Here's the, the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country. Now, Jesus left us. He went to a far country, didn't he? He went to the right hand of the Father. He says, but he delivered to his servants all of his goods in order to steward those goods, to take care of those goods. And he begins to unwrap this parable to us. But let me, let me give you a little bit of background about this parable. This begins from chapter 24 when all of the disciples say, Jesus, what's going to be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And he gives them all this list of things. He says, you need to be looking for this stuff. There's going to be pestilences and earthquakes and nation rising against nation and, and, and all these different things that are, going, that are going to be happening. And then he starts to speak about these parables. And it, it would be good for you to go in and read in Matthew 24, Matthew 25, the parables that Jesus teaches. Because when he's teaching the parables, he's basically categorizing all humanity and especially his followers into two categories. He basically says there's going to be people who have an understanding and they have a vision and there's going to be a group of people who have no understanding and they have no vision. They're not able to see what's going on in the world around them and he's telling these parables. He says there's a group who's going to be prepared and there's a group who is not going to be prepared. And one of the first parables he tells, it's one of my favorite parables. It's the, parables of, of the, ten, the parable of the ten virgins. And he says... Basically, you have these ten virgins, and five were foolish, and five were wise. Now, in those days, when people were going to get married, the bridegroom, the guy that was going to marry his wife, would ride in on horseback in the middle of the night, and back then they didn't have street lights. Amen? It was dark. It was very dark. And so he's riding in. He's trying to find out where his wife is. He's like, where's she at? It's dark out here. And he's riding in, and what would happen is these people, these, these virgins, they would line up on the outside, and they would have these lamps, and they would put oil in their lamps to keep the lamp burning because they didn't know exactly when the bridegroom was going to come, so they would line up out on the darkened street, and the bridegroom would be able to see from a distance, there's the light shining, my, br my, my, my bride must be over there. And as he's riding in, all of a sudden he says, here's what Jesus says, he says, five had oil in their lamps, and they went out to meet the bridegroom. He says, but there were another five who had no oil in their lamps. And when they woke up, they said, listen, we don't have any oil. Give us some of yours. And they said, we can't give you none of ours, lest we not have enough oil while we're out here. The point being is that there were five foolish who were not stirring up the gift of God, who were not kindling that flame in their own life, and they did not have the oil to keep the light on in the darkness. They weren't ready. They weren't prepared. They didn't have the light. They did not have the resources to keep the light on in the darkness. And I'm telling you, right now in our age, is, it, it, I, who knows when the Lord is going to return? We don't know. But we do know that, that we, we must be ready. We must be aware of those types of things in our lives. And what he's saying is there's going to be a group. 
And you have, to, you have to discern. It's a discerning time where you realize, am I the one seeing or am I the one not seeing? Is my light on in the dark? Now, the good news is, is that the Scripture says, for example, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, let me just read these verses to you. It says, For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety... Then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of night nor of the darkness. So what he's saying is, he says, you're sons of the light, you're sons of day. That means that there are dark times coming, but the thing that identifies you as a Christian is that you're constantly shining as a bright light in the darkness, pointing the way and calling out in the middle of the darkness, the bridegroom is coming. Salvation is coming. And see, that when we talk about end times, end times should not be a frightening thing for a Christian believer. And when we talk about the end times, we should not be using it as a fear tactic to scare people into believing in Jesus. We should be using it as a tactic to say, look, we've lived our entire lives apart from Jesus going one direction, and the end of that direction is destruction, but Jesus wants us saved. He wants us to have eternal life. He wants us to have life abundantly. And so we have the opportunity in the midst of this darkness to say, look, the bridegroom is coming, and when he comes, he's going to set up and establish his reign and his rule on earth as it is in heaven. There's going to be no more sorrow, no more pain, no more crying, no more suffering. Everything is going to be made whole, and that can start now in your life. That's the message. And he's saying, but you've got to be ready because I, this thing is about to wrap up. And I'll be honest with you, I thank God for that. I, 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 don't, I don't have a death wish. I, I'm thankful for the life that God has given me because I have a good life. But I will be so happy on the day when all things are restored, and there's so many of the things, there's so much pain, there's so much suffering in this world. Terrible things that happen day to day. And I'll be honest with you, a lot of times that's, that's exactly what we, 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 get, we get so used to the stuff that's happening, we just grow numb to it. And we just sort of push it aside. And we don't even realize, wow, this is the hour. This is the time that Jesus spoke of that he said, you need to be alert in your heart. Doesn't mean you have to be a crazy person that's hollering end times on the street corner. It just means that you have to be aware. You have to be alert of the things that are going on in the life around you. Now see, John says, in First Thessalonians, Paul says, you're children of the day, you're children of the light. And we talk about a child of light. See, John saw this light. In John chapter 1, verse 4 and 5, John said, he's basically saying, look, we saw the light. And he said, he was the life, and this life was the light of men. And he said, the light shined in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. Now, he's saying, we saw what the light did. We saw... In Jesus Christ, the light of God. And he came in and he lit us up and he said, man, this is the point of life. This is what life is all about. We saw that light shining in the darkness. And here's what I believe John saw more than anything is that he saw the passion of God in Christ for lost humanity. He understood that Jesus came to seek and save that which was lost. He saw that in Jesus, man. Every day of his life, he saw Jesus going out of his way to heal the sick to reach out to the broken and the afflicted. He saw Jesus every day loving the one individual because for Jesus, it, he wanted to save the whole world, but it wasn't just about the entire world. It was about the one individual that he was going to cross paths with that day. And, and, and John saw this and he said, man, this, he had such a passion that he, he says the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He was willing to set aside all comfort Anything this world could offer him, he denied it. He denied people uh, elevating him as some kind of public figure. 
He rejected anything this world could offer him, any comfort, and he was not afraid of it. And when people accused him, John said, man, I saw no fear in him. There was no fear in this man any day. Imagine hanging out with Jesus for three years. You know, you know and all of, the, all of the people that were around him and him going and preaching to all these different people. And every morning he woke up, do you think every morning whenever they woke Jesus up, that he was like, oh boys, I'm nervous. You know what we're going to do? We've got 5,000 coming up over the hill. We've got the Sermon on the Mount coming up. Get everything together, fellas. Make, the, make sure everything's all right. We've got to have enough seats out. Everything's got to be... No. There was no fear. There was no fear in him. Because he had one motive. He had one drive. He was compelled by love. He was compelled by love. He wasn't afraid when they said, we're going to kill you. We're going to take your life. We're going to take you to the cross. Even as he's going to the cross, there is no fear in him because he knows, he realizes the reason I'm going to that cross is for love. Because I see thousands and millions and billions ultimately that are going to, to die without the knowledge of why they exist, that are never going to know true love, never going to experience healing. They're going to be enslaved by the powers of darkness. And he says, I'm going to that cross and I'm willing to bear the pain, the discomfort, the rejection, the shame, the abandonment. I'm willing to bear all of it. Why? Because of love. And John saw that and he said, man, that's the light of the world. And if we can get a hold of that, he says, then you become children of light. You become sons of light. And here's what, what John said, 1 John 4.18. I want you to think of 1 John 4.18 in that context because it's a verse we quote all the time. But he says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. There's only one perfect love. That's the love of Jesus Christ. Revealed to you in him giving himself for you in your place on the cross. He says, this perfect love, it casts out fear because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. And the next verse says, we love him because he first loved us. And I'm telling you, if you're fearful right now, the one thing that gets me through, because I don't know, like, it's a rare person, I guess, that looks inwardly and is like, man, I'm pretty awesome. You know? Does anybody in here do that? You're weird. I'd like to talk to you about it, though. I mean, because, because when I look in on myself, I'm like, man... I need help. Like, this is, this is bad. And, I'm th and, and I think about, you know, like literally ministering on behalf of the God of the universe, on behalf of Jesus Christ, which, which Donald's wife did tell me I looked like Jesus the other day, so I got that going for me. It's the beard. But I'm really not a whole lot like him. I've got fear in my heart. I've got hesitation. But I want you to understand that I know, I know you've got fears in your heart. You've got hesitation. God's not afraid of that. That's why he's giving us scripture and he's saying, look, I need you to understand. I know you got fear. I know you got fear. I know, I know things are hindering you. I know things that are grabbing you, but I've put a deposit on the inside of you. There's something greater than that fear. There's something more powerful than that fear. And he says, there's a love that if you realize how loved you are by me, then you'll not be fearful when you step out. I love you so much. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I'll be with you. When you step out, I will be there every time. You say, well, I don't deserve it, though, Lord. It's not about what you deserve. I loved you so much I died on the cross when you were in your sin. And he's saying, that's how much I love you. And I want you to understand that that perfect love casts out fear. Now, now, now I'm going to finish with this, this parable that we went to, and, and I'll be done. Matthew 25, for the kingdom of heaven, just like we said, is like a man traveling to a far country who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. And to one, he gave five talents. And to another, two, and to another, one, to each according to his own ability. 
And immediately he went on a journey. And then he who had received the five talents went and traded with them and made another five talents. And likewise, he who had received two gained two more also. But he who had received one went and dug in the ground and hid his Lord's money. And after a long time, the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. Now, when we're talking about talents, he's not talking about like your actual talents, like you can play guitar, even though that's, that is, you know, I believe those things are from heaven. I believe they're from God. But talents uh, here is actually a currency. It's a form of money. And, and listen to this. I read it. A talent is 15 years wages. So if you got, if you got five talents, you got 75 years worth of wages. He's covering you for 75 years of ministry in the, with, that, with, with, with those five talents. If he gives you one talent, he's still giving you 15 years of currency, right? So he's, he's covering you. He's giving them a large portion of goods, but he is dividing it among his servants. You know that there's not one servant in here that God's given them everything. He's made it so that we rely upon each other. He's made it so that I have to depend on you to accomplish the goal that God has called me to. And you have to depend on me. We're interconnected. We're a body. But he calls them and he says, look, he's, he's going to give some five, he's going to give some uh, two, he's going to give some one in the talents. But here's what I want you to understand is that, that, that sometimes there is, you need more talents. Some things are more challenging. Some things are more difficult. And there, it's not always this, this, the thing that you think because sometimes I often think that, it, you know, it's, it, it may just take one talent to go on a mission trip to Africa, but it takes five to reach your neighbor. That's just the truth. It's easy for somebody to up and say, yeah, I'll go down here and serve and, and do this and, and, and do all that. that. That takes about one talent. But when you sit down with a family member who is as wild as a buck and you're trying to share the love of Jesus with them and you don't know how to go about it, you don't know how, the right words to say, man, you need something from God. You need a spiritual gift at times. There are times that we do, I'm telling you, there are times that we deal with people and, and we're trying to help people, we're sharing the gospel with them, and I'm telling you, we cannot get through with those people unless you have a gift of the Holy Spirit, unless God gives you some kind of a word of knowledge or a word of wisdom or some kind of direction on how to begin to move in those situations to minister to them, to pray for them and to believe for breakthrough. He's saying, look, I gotta, you, you got to have the currency of heaven. And, and this, this talent, these talents... Is God bringing these things into our life? Now, he's saying, he's saying you, you just need to be obedient. Because no matter what God has given you, that's, that's, that's irrelevant. For some of you, God has called you to a certain situation. Maybe it's one person. Maybe it's one place at this moment in your life. But the key is not to worry about what He's called you to or how much He's called you to. It's to be obedient with what He's given you right now. Because you can never advance to the next until you're obedient with what he has given you right now. Now in verse 20 and 20 through 23, he said, So he who had received five talents came and brought five other talents, saying, Lord, you delivered me five talents. Look, I've gained five more talents beside them. And his Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. He also who had received two talents came and said, Lord, you delivered to me two talents. Look, I've gained two more talents beside them. And his Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of the Lord. Now notice, the person with five, they used the five that God gave them and gained five more. The person that was given two, he used the two that God gave him and God gave him two more. He earned two more. 
and he brought it to the Lord. So what I'm telling you is that whatever God has deposited into you at this point, his goal is not for you to say, he's, he's, he's not wanting you to say, hey, just keep that, hold on to it, don't do nothing with it. He's saying, if I give you something, my intentions are that you increase that thing, that you build it up, that you multiply, so that when you come before me and before my throne, you can say, Lord, you gave me this amount and I increased it by your grace and by your glory and now I return it to you. He's not looking for you to just store it up. He's looking for you to put to use what He has given you. And He says this at each time. Notice each of them have the same reward. Some of you, He's just calling you to be a good mother and raise godly children. While He may be calling Donald to preach the gospel in all the world. And because Donald is obedient to preaching the gospel in all the world, and you were obedient to raising three godly children, you both will stand before God and you know what He's going to say to both of you? Well done, my good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things, I'll make you ruler over many. It's not about how awesome you think one person is. We don't know what they've been called to. There may even be some people that are pastors that weren't called to pastor. And outwardly it looks like they're doing a good job, but God has called them into the business realm. And they will be held accountable for what God's called them to. Does that make sense to you? You have to be obedient to what God has called you to. And you can only find that out. You can only get a personal vision through a personal relationship. I can't tell you what God's calling to. I can give you some help. I can point you in the direction. I can teach you how to develop a relationship with God to the best of my ability. But ultimately, you have to hear from God. You have to know what He's calling you to. You have to hear that. And He says, you were faithful over a few things. Here's another thing that I want you to understand. Is whatever God gives you, He will never give you. He'll give you a vision. He'll show you the end. But He will never give you and place that vision into your lap at the beginning because He cannot trust you with the fullness of that vision until you've proven yourself in the small things. And that's one of the most difficult things in Christianity because we want things so quickly. We want God to give us the big thing at first. Listen, when I first started preaching, I preached for almost two years. Every Friday night. And I cannot tell you the number of nights that I preached wide open to one human being. And I'm like, ah, God, praise God. You know what I'm saying? And there would be one person just sitting there looking at it. And I'd be, every Friday, John Runyon was there. He knows. He's probably the one that got preached at down there. Every Friday night. And, and, and over time, though, it grew. Over time, it built. And, and things changed. But you know how easy it would have been for me in those early stages of my calling to say, Lord, there ain't nobody there. And, and, and I would hear just this little voice on the inside of me saying, Son, that's what I've called you to. You're going to be obedient. And some of the things that God has called you to, you think are so small, they're just insignificant, that you've set them, set them to the side. And one of the things that's getting in the way of, of you progressing is your own pride. Because it's not big enough for you. It's not good enough. It's not, it's not spectacular enough. And God is calling you to something small right now. And it's not that He doesn't want to give you something more, but He's got to be able to trust you with the small things before he can trust you and give you the rule of many things. And finally, we come to the last guy in verse 24, the guy with the one talent. And he says, Then he who had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew you were a hard man, reaping where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. Now notice this. This man has a measure of the life of Christ in this person. But he's got no increase. And he says, I knew you were a hard man, Lord. You send people where no seed has been sown, and, and, and you send them to reap a harvest where, where a harvest has not ever been gathered. In other words, he's saying, Lord, I knew that you, if I did this, you would probably send me places that were uncomfortable. Anybody ever felt that way about the Lord? Man, I sure have. 
He sent me in a lot of uncomfortable positions. It's always ended up better than I thought it was going to be. But he sent me in places where I've wanted to back out. I tell people all the time, I get a lot of phone calls and different things, and, I, and sometimes I have to deal with some just strange things sometimes. And my first, my, fir- my, my first reaction is usually not, yes, I get a minister of the gospel. My first reaction is like, how can I get out of this? I'm just being honest. But I have to set aside my flesh and what I want. The last thing I actually want is, any, is to be in front of people. My, gr- my greatest bleh, in life is, is standing in front of people and speaking, but it's what God's called me to do, right? So I have to set aside my flesh and I have to say, no, this, Lord, this is what you've called me to. And so he says, I knew you'd send me into places where it would be hard. And the truth is, here's the thing. I think sometimes in the church we get tired of the way that people are living their lives around us. And we just say, you know what? These people really aren't worth, worth dying for. They're not worth giving, giving myself for. And I just don't want to deal with confrontation. I don't want to deal with any kind of discomfort. I don't want to deal with anything that's going to be, you know out of the way or difficult for me. So what we do is we just sort of retreat into our own corner. And really what happens is churches begin to internalize and they say, well, you know what? We can just stay safe right here and never step out of our boundaries and just stay safe and among us. And as long as we're doing well and reaping the benefits of Christianity, then everything's going to be okay. We just don't want to go outside of our comfort zone and reap where there's not been a harvest. I'm telling you right now, God is calling us to places in our community to reap where there has never been a harvest. To sow where seed has never been sown. And that's a difficult thing, man. It's a difficult thing, but that is what God is calling us to. And in verse 25, here's what he said. He said, look, I knew you were going to call me to a difficult place, and I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Look, here, you have what is yours. He's saying, look, I knew you were going to call me to a difficult place, so what I did was I got scared, and I took the talent, and I hid it. I hid it in the ground, and I just kept it locked away. Now, this is a man that he knows the purposes of God. He understands what God is calling him to do. But out of his fear, he chose to hide that which God had placed into him. And I got to ask you this this morning. Are you being a faithful steward of what God has actually placed on the inside of you? There are people in here this morning, no doubt in my mind, they know beyond a shadow of a doubt, God has called them to something. And their fear, their negative view of themselves has called them caused them to hide away that which God has given them. And you go on, he hid it in the ground. You know, Matthew 24, verse 12, as I was reading through this this morning, Matthew 24, verse 12, I don't think I put it up there. But it says, because iniquity shall abound, the love of many will grow cold. Because iniquity shall abound, the love of many will grow cold. If love is our motivating factor as as the body of Christ, what causes our love to decrease, decrease and grow cold is because when iniquity abounds in all the earth, man, we see people that are struggling with some crazy things in our world today. And oftentimes we look at them and we say, well, you know what? They don't help themselves. They don't do this. They don't do that. They don't do that. And we look at them and all of a sudden our love begins to grow cold for them. And we begin to look at them and we say, Lord, you may have died for them, but they don't look like worth dying for to me. And we may not even say that outwardly, but inwardly in our hearts, even though Jesus had the love that was willing to lay down his life for them, we have lost that love that was willing to give our lives for them. And he says, this has grown cold, and we hid it in the ground, and we lost it. I want you all to come up to the music. I'm going to finish here pretty quickly. Verse 26, it says, But his Lord answered and said to him, You wicked and lazy servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather, where I have not scattered seed. So you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers, and at my coming I would have received back my own with interest. Now, here's what he's saying. He's saying, 
even if you weren't going to go do it, you could have at least supported and given to the ones who were going to go do it. If you decided, you, I just can't do this, Lord. He's saying, well, then take your one talent and then give it to the person that is going to use it. And then Jesus goes into something which honestly is not a, a very politically correct statement here in our generation. But he says in verse 28, so take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. We're, Jesus is saying, that guy that's got one, take it from him and give it to the dude with ten. Now in our generation, that's messed up, isn't it? You don't take from somebody who has one and give it to the person who has ten. And then he says, For to everyone who has, more will be given and he will have an abundance. But from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away and cast the unprofitable servant into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, I'm a good investor. That's just all there is to it. And I'm not just going to place my goods and my resources in a place where they're not going to be good stewards of it. You have to be a good steward of this good deposit. But he's saying there's a possibility of increase in your life. And he says, take from the one who, who is not using it. And he said, give it to the one who is using it. If you want increase in your life, God is saying, even if I've just given you one at this point, he says, if you will begin to put that one into use, you're going to start to see increase. And you're going to become, you're going to become a, a funnel, so to speak, of my glory, of my gift, of my power, of my love, and of my wisdom. And I'm going to begin to use you in ways that you never dreamt that I could use you. So to close right here, I just want you to, to look at these four things. I've tried to give you something practical to take away from, from these messages, but God's given you a deposit and he's called you to be a steward. And I want to give you a, a stewardship checklist real quick. And these are four very, very simple things. And the first one is, am I being a good steward of the gospel? I want you to just ask yourself that for a minute. Am I sharing my faith and currently seeking to lead anyone to Christ? in any shape, form, or fashion? Am I being a good steward of the gospel? Secondly, am I being a good steward of my time? What that means is, am I giving my time to God in His Word and in prayer in order to know Him more intimately and receive the resources I need to fulfill His calling on my life? Am I being a good steward of my time? I know we get busy. We've got a lot of things to do. But in this life, if we want the gift to be stirred up, we've got to come to God in His Word. We have to develop a prayer life. We have to seek the face of God because you say, well, Clay, I know you're talking about the gift and stuff and, and things that we're called to do, but I just don't have that on the inside of me. I've never experienced this stuff that you're talking about. Well, listen, I had never experienced it either. But I'm telling you, when you go to God and you cry out and you ask for the resources, He will give you what you ask for. Thirdly, am I being a good steward of my gifts? Am I using my gifts for the benefit of the church and others? Because God has given you all different abilities, whatever they may be. And you've got to ask yourself, am I using what God has given me for the benefit of the people around me, for the church and for others? And lastly, my stuff. I like that word stuff because it is just uh, it's what it is. Am I using my money and the things that I own for God's purposes of building his kingdom. And I be, am I being a good steward in every area of my life that God has given me to be a good steward of? And he's basically saying, look, if you understand this parable that I've taught to you, you understand that I have given you a deposit. I'm asking you to fan that thing into flames. And I'm asking you to put it to use. And if you put it to use, I will give you increase in those areas. You've got to catch a vision of that. You've got to allow those things to begin to be stirred up in your life. So once you stand to your feet with me, once you just close your eyes for a moment.
let the let the spirit speak to you about what you've heard this morning and you know the the, the first thing that we talked about we talked we talk about this love that, that Jesus Christ had when he died for us and I just want to give everybody an opportunity to respond to that and if you if you're in here this morning you say you know what I I, I need before I share that gospel I need to believe that gospel I need to receive it I need to receive that good news that Jesus Christ died for my sins to set me free, to give me new life. And I want to know salvation. I want to begin that walk with Jesus. I want to turn from my old life, from my old way of living, and I want to begin to follow Jesus now. If that's you, I want you just real quickly to raise your hand to let me know that that's you, that you want to begin to follow Jesus right now in this moment. Anybody at all? Anybody at all? All right. Praise God. Now for the rest of us, I want us to I want us just to allow God to begin to stir that gift up in us. So I, I want to I pray for you real quick. And then after we pray, we're just going to worship for a moment. And I want to invite everybody who will to come, spend time in worship, spend time in prayer, allow the Lord to speak to you. Father, we just pray right now. I pray for, for my brothers and my sisters and for myself, God. And we thank you for this gift that you put on the inside of us. And Lord, I pray that you would give us the grace to begin to stir up that gift that's on the inside of us, Lord, because there are people here this morning, God, that you've placed something on the inside of them. Maybe even it was years ago. And, 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 and God, that thing has been lying dormant in their life. But Lord, you're calling it to come alive right now. And you're giving new life to that seed that was planted into their heart. And so I pray, Lord, that your word would be true because God, you've not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. And I pray this morning that that would be imparted to each person in this place, God, that you would give them supernatural strength and courage, Lord. And you would begin to give them, God, a vision of what you're calling them to so that they would become good stewards, Lord, of that which you've deposited into their life. Lord, we thank you for it all, God. We ask you to fill us up this morning as we worship in Jesus' name.